Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and anyone else interested in the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. And we are students at Emory University who are interested in bringing the Hebrew Bible to preachers who are excited about preaching it but need a little bit of resources to do so. For the past few weeks, we've had little sort of bite-sized episodes of First Reading, but this week we have the full entree, and you're going to love it. We are so excited to have with us today Reverend Dr. Vanessa Lovelace. Vanessa Lovelace, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to, I'm delighted actually, to be here with you and Tim. Uh, Dr. Lovelace is an associate professor of Hebrew Bible at the Interdenominational Theological Center. That's a mouthful. The mouthful Interdenominational <laughs> Theological Center in Atlanta. is It is a consortium of historically black seminaries. And so in that setting, I've, you know, we've got this practice in Christian ecumenism. And so I'm trying to balance all of these different denominational commitments as I'm teaching Bible and gender and sexuality and race. Um, And so it makes it very interesting to teach in that context. Her areas of expertise include Deuteronomistic history, Hebrew Bible prophets and prophecy, and women and gender in ancient Israel. In her work, Dr. Lovelace uses methods such as literary criticism and gender and nation theory through a womanist lens. One of the reasons that I was personally so excited to have you on this podcast was because um, you are an African-American female scholar who uses the womanist lens, um, which is a perspective and a scholarship that is really underrepresented in the field today. Um, I was just through your book that I was reading, um, learned that in the late 1990s, there was a dozen women of color who were biblical scholars who had their degree at that point. Is that correct? Yes. Um, When I joined ITC, that was a first for any institution in the U.S. that had three African-American women Mm. Bible scholars. Mm. Um, I'm I'm the only one there now, um, but we are still moving slowly. We are moving at a pace of about 10 scholars a decade. (laughs) So we are up to about 30 now. Hmm. And it's about evenly split Hebrew Bible, um, uh, Christian scriptures, New Testament. And of course, um, not all black women identify as womanist. Mm -hmm. And so to be intentional about identifying my scholarship as womanist is important for me that I'm looking at this through a lens that fits my, you know, in terms of how, where I grew up as an African-American culture. And when Alice Walker coined the term, her, her first definition comes from that quote, that African-American culture, folk culture of womanish. You're acting womanish. And so growing up with that term, um, that, that resonated that she had chosen to call this womanist out of that tradition. There's a quote from your book on page 15. Um, could you read that for us? Now? Sure. We realize that collaboration and sharing is at the heart of womanist doings and ways of being in the world. We recognize that interpreting sacred texts cannot be done independent of the communities with whom we read and to whom we are accountable. All of the essays demonstrate that our black bodies and our black lives cannot be left outside of the interpretive process. Likewise, the bodies and lives of all interpreters are integral in the interpretive process. Mm. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Well, should we dive into the text? Yeah, why don't we bring the things that we've been talking about into the, the lectionary text that we're looking at for this week, which is Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 to 21. Since you've got it in front of you there, uh, could you read the English for us just so we're all sort of thinking mm. together? This is from the JPS version, too, so a little different than the NRSV. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, give us uh, Isaiah 43. Thus said the Lord, who made a road through the sea and a path through mighty waters, who destroyed chariots and horses and all the mighty host. They lay down to rise no more. They were extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not recall what happened of old or ponder what happened of yore. I am about to do something new. Even now it shall come to pass. Suddenly you perceive it. I will make a road through the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts shall honor me, jackals and ostriches, for I provide water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. Word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Forgive me if this is jumping ahead a little too quickly to something that maybe we would want to talk about later, but um, you were talking earlier about how when you bring a womanist lens to the scriptures, there are certain passages that sort of leap off the page. I don't think of womanist uh, categories when I come to a text like this, but I wonder, is there a way to look at a text like this that has some of those interpretive sensibilities built into our reading? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> the, so what resonated, I don't even think I got past the first verse, um, and immediately what resonated was Exodus. Mm-hmm. Um, I went straight to Exodus 15 and to the uh, wilderness experience. So all of that language around um, both um, literally, I, by literally I mean the Exodus narrative, but how much the prophets also use that metaphorically to represent the exile, to speak of the exile. Mm-hmm. Um, and so oftentimes the exile was a second exodus. Mm-hmm. It was a second wilderness experience. Um, and so uh, when they re- talked about the uh, making a road through the sea mm-hmm. and the horse uh, uh, and a path through mighty waters who destroyed chariots and horses, Went immediately, well, you know, to Exodus 14 first, yeah. um, and Pharaoh's um, army and his chariots and horses being drowned in the Reed Sea. Um, and then you get to the end of the, um, the last verse in 21, and what is the response to God's deliverance? God's salvation is praise. Mm-hmm. And wh- who usually did the praise? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, yeah. the women. Yeah. <laughs> And so Miriam and her uh, dancers and singers and antiphonal song with their hand drums out there um, celebrating this mighty warrior, um, the divine warrior in this instance, um, that that immediately for me would have been a womanist move Mm -hmm. to uh, bring in Miriam into the picture. Yeah, I had not even thought of bringing Miriam into the picture. Mm -hmm. That's a really great insight. Mm -hmm. So this Isaiah passage is, is saying there's there's an occasion for that kind of response. No, you're right. It is, it's both. We've gone from this as a disaster in 722 BCE around the Assyrian um, invasion, and then we get to second, what we call second Isaiah, and 
there's no direct reference to the Babylonian invasion um, and the exile, but we're just suddenly thrust forward into it. The psychological and literal physical emotional toil that this community experienced, the sense of abandonment, the sense that you know God has forgotten us, God has abandoned us, and then suddenly we get to 43, wait a minute. Now Isaiah comes with this message of hope and expectation and that indeed God had not forgotten us. God had not abandoned us and God is about to do a new thing. As much as we've suffered, um, as much as we have just lost hope, we do know what God has done in our past. We can trust that God is going to do a new thing. And that God is going to deliver, and therefore we can praise God. Mm-hmm. It almost reminds me a little bit, too, of I know sometimes churches have these great, wonderful pasts and these wonderful memories of the past, which um, can almost become a stuck place for them, too. Um, it, it almost sounds to me a little like God saying, remember all of these incredible times, but don't stop there. Like, yeah. it gets better yet. I will do bigger things yes. yet. My wondrous <laughs> love has not stopped in 1950 or whenever it, the, the good times were in 1589. Anyway. I, I did that, but, yeah. but what I'm about to do, yeah, yeah. You know, this is something you haven't seen. You hold on to your hat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the best is yet to come. Yeah, right. One of the things that we like to do for our listeners is to point out some of the linguistic things that are happening in a text like this. And uh, one of the things that that struck me was the repetition of the word derech, of the way. The way, the path. And uh, in the kind of early part, uh, it it references the way that God made through the sea. And then there's this new thing that God is doing, making a way, a derech, through the wilderness. I've been working in the Psalms. I'm more of a Psalm scholar, and so I think of the um, the requests to always be kept to God's way, which are mm-hmm. kind of coming over and over and over again in the Psalms, that there's this idea that there's lots of ways around us, but this one is the way through the desert, and this one is the way through the Sea of Reeds. And, and man, if you stick to that way, just keep my feet on that way. Um, that That's what comes to mind for me, too. Well, sometimes the, um, that term um, is used to announce God's presence and, and leading. Um, mm-hmm. And again, going back to the Exodus, that um, notion of uh, when God made the way through the um, waters. So almost there's kind of an ethical tie to the word mm-hmm. uh, in that context. I wonder if that resonates a little bit to, to hear because there's an invitation in that. It's not just here's the fact I'm, I've made a way, I'm making a way, but there's, a, there's, a call, there's an ethical call there. Because it's God's way, there's a, there's a call to be a part of that, to follow it, to walk well, it. There is that, you know, again, before um, Isaiah 40 is the idea that they had lost their way, mm. that they had not followed God's way. So now God is trying to not only get them back on the right path, um, but... I'm, I'm going to make a way through all of this that you have gone through. Um, I'm going to make the way. And so now follow. Mm-hmm. If you want to get out of here, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, then follow me. Yeah, right. you know, if you want to get stuck somewhere, keep doing all yeah. the and going these other directions that you've been going. 
I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating when you read Isaiah all the way through. You know, you, you there are these themes that come up over and over again in First Isaiah, which kind of get taken and then flipped in Second Isaiah, and yes. that the path that derech seems to be one of those. Uh, I'm I'm interested a little bit in uh, what you what you think or know about zachar, this idea of memory Re- and remembering. yeah, to remember and and how is just theologically how is remembering and memory an important aspect of the relationship between God and Israel in Isaiah? Again, I went back to uh, the. Exodus, the, not so much, not the book of Exodus, but um, Deuteronomy mm-hmm. um, 5 and 6. And, you know, when we get the Decalogue, the, that switch on the Decalogue mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, of uh, why do we celebrate uh, or why do we remember, observe the Passover? Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out and therefore to remember mm-hmm. what God has done. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So in or this relationship with God, you know, and then you get that. Throughout the rest of the you know, Hebrew Bible canon is, uh, remember you were slaves in Egypt. Yeah. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. Yeah, I, I love that idea of, of memory almost becoming something that can like make manifest a reality. You know, that that this reality was before and when you remember it, it, you know, it reminds me of the words of institution. You know, do this in remembrance of me. That, mm-hmm. that when you do an action, you're almost like bringing something into reality that either wasn't before or that you'd forgotten. Um, Seems to me that, that that concept is there in in the Hebrew use of it. It also works really well in English, right? Yeah, right. Remember. You're, you're yeah. putting the members of something back together again yeah, yeah. in the act of remembering. Oh, that's so good. I sh- as a body scholar, I totally should have picked up on that. You know, we've, we've touched on this, um, but since we're talking about it, maybe we can hit it again. So do we remember? Do we not remember? <laughs> Verse 18, how are you supposed to remember these things or don't remember these things? <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, in my research, uh, the, I, the scholars were kind of conflicted on whether or not mm. it's don't remember the wilderness, mm. you know, um, or is this, again, that remembering is that moral ethical call to think and to do, to mm. be a certain way. How can you not remember that experience when it takes you to the um, animals in the wilderness, the jackals and the ostrich, yeah. and um, who also uh, praise God or recognize God uh-huh. <laughs> and the, the poor authority and power of God, that the, the wild beasts honor me, uh, the jackals and the ostrich, because I provide water in the wilderness. Yeah. And so you cannot not recall the wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's sort of a, like, a, like a hyperbolic comparison. like. That was good, but uh, it's not even worth remembering compared to yes. what you're about to experience. Yes. There's a connection. There's there's continuity, but there's a heck of a lot of discontinuity because this is going to be so great. So what what's the newness? What's the new thing? It's not just I'm doing something else, but I'm doing something that's new. It's fresh. What is Isaiah announcing to the people that is about to happen? It is not just that that God has not forgotten them, that God has come or will deliver them soon, but that going forward back to Jerusalem, it's not going to be the same. That new thing that is going to happen is not going to be, as you said, Tim, like it was in the past. Um, so, yes, there are these resonances, and you know, but I just forget about that because what is about to come 
is something totally new. Yeah. I'd never thought about it that way. I'd always just kind of thought about it as like the moment of gathering. But I, I love that idea that it's almost that encouragement that it may feel like you're going back to something that was, but, you know, kind of the old trope of like you can never go home again. Like it's it's not going to be the same. In fact, it's going to be new. And this is a good thing. You know, I think of churches who newness and change are not the most fun things ever. <laughs> um, but this idea that God is saying, yes, I know. But that's the caveat um, when we get to the third Isaiah on the yeah. restoration period. There was still that culture shock yeah. of returning to Jerusalem. There is still that um, trying to be the, the struggle and the tension in being this new people. Yeah you know, the same people, but yet not, mm-hmm. uh, of being new, uh, of trying to reestablish, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, reestablish their homes, mm-hmm. um, reclaim their homes, yeah. <laughs> um, this, the tension over that. Um, it was a real struggle, and we see that in Ezra and Nehemiah and, you know, some of the other prophets. Mm-hmm. New isn't always good. Mm-hmm. That. It isn't always easy. It isn't always easy. So preaching pitfalls, we have a section where we talk about mistakes that are easy to make when you're trying to preach this, especially as a Christian preacher. um, Absolutely. Preaching the Hebrew Bible. So uh, before I go into mine, do you have any that jump out to you of easy uh, mistakes that one could make when preaching this? Probably the, for us, the most obvious is always see Jesus in everything. (laughs) Um, And so... Really trying to get pastors uh, to sit with the text where the people are, um, to really see this as a community that is suffering, that has been through a trauma, and that now is about to finally have that come to an end, and to help your congregation to just be there in that moment for those who are wrestling or struggling with something to be have comfort, to take comfort from this passage that uh, God will mm. cause it to end. You know, I mean, for their suffering, you know, that God, that I, the prophet announces that it is going to come to an end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and again, I always end on, and so praise God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even though it hasn't happened yet because of what God has done in the past. Mm-hmm. And so just to sit there with that, and and we don't have to, you know, bring the New Testament into yeah. it. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that I always wrestle with is how do you take these lessons about suffering um, and about trauma and about an end to suffering that the that this passage is talking about and take seriously the fact that they were so communally based while when we preach— um, at least in my mind, I'm preaching to a community, but I'm also thinking about preaching to individuals. And so I worry sometimes that I rush too fast past that community reality that these texts were written for. Think in terms of the fire in um, Northern California. Um, mm. An entire community was wiped out. Mm. That's communal. And so how could you preach to that community? Not to forget that, um, yes, suffering can happen to an individual, but communities Mm -hmm. also often have to uh, deal with trauma. Mm -hmm. 
And so how do you uh, to look at it from that sense of what does that look like for an entire community? I, I like that a lot, um, especially because I, I think it gives you the opportunity as a pastor to preach to families, you know, to talk about, well, what, what is the suffering and the trauma in your family and how, how has your community? So even if you're, you're not coming in a congregation that has just gone through a massive fire or a hurricane, that idea that, no, there are still communities that exist that may have experienced trauma right in the pews in front of you. And that taking the opportunity to not only speak to the individuals, but to speak to them about their family is, is a really great opportunity in this instance. Yeah. And not even being political here, but I mean, the government shutdown, that was yeah. over, that wasn't just 800,000, but all of the other tangential contractors and their families and yeah. those mm-hmm. communities um, that all suffered um, from not having, knowing if they were going to get their next paycheck or when. Um, and so I think the other difficult pitfall is not to preach retributive justice, even though that is clearly here in the text. (laughs) (laughs) That uh, God um, allowed or used Babylon to punish um, Judah, that uh, God allowed them to be taken captive. It is still nonetheless, you know, under the surface that this unfaithful nation slash unfaithful wife uh, was responsible. She got what she had coming. Um, and so to be careful with blaming the victim. Absolutely. I, I really appreciated, uh, as far as preaching pitfalls, what you said a little earlier, Vanessa, about the that the new thing that God is doing is a, a moving forward um, where it's going to be different than it was before. One of the th- things with a passage like this that I could imagine hearing from the pulpit is that you've been through a trauma, but, you know, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. You just go back to how you were before, and it's all it's all fine. So, like, a too, too much good news too quickly. Like, yeah. God's going to make it all good. It's going to be all better. But this is saying something a little different from that. It's it's saying that what, what happened is significant, but God is doing something new, but it's not going to be how it was before. And it can't be if there's... Again, using the theology of the text, um, that there's been this betrayal, even through reconciliation, the relationship can't be the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It has to be something it new. It has to be something new. Yeah. Well, um, why don't we move toward uh, just some possible ways to—this has come up in our conversation already, but just ways that we might approach preaching a text like this, maybe some of the, the hooks that, that you might start from if you were putting together a sermon on this passage. Well, for me, it would definitely come—it would, it would start with that whole wilderness thing. Um, I might go to— um, Go down Moses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. Would you sing it? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was not one of my gifts. I used to sing along with the, uh, with, you know, it's the hymns are sung, but uh, no, that is not one of the gifts God gave me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm stealing something that you said, Rachel. You mentioned, and I was thinking about this too, churches that have sort of a glory days past. Mm-hmm. And how certain um, uh, contingents of congregations can kind of get stuck in. Uh, if only we could get back to how that, how those days were, and what church was like then. And there is a, a call in this text. I think uh, it's in a way it's future leaning, 
Like it's those days were important, but um, there's something new happening now, and have your eyes open for that. I might I might grab onto something with that, and even I mean the the verb is a is in participle form here. I'm doing something new, so there's there's even in addition to sort of a future leaning posture here there's there's like a now posture like if if you could see it if you would open your eyes to it it's already sprouting up it says it's it's already begun to sprout up i'm doing something now and i think uh there are plenty of churches mine included that could hear a word like that where uh if only we could open our eyes to see what god is up to among us right now um then we wouldn't be so interested in getting back to those good old days because (laughs) The days ahead have quite a bit of potential, too. Yeah. And are you ready for it? Are you ready for a new thing? You know, if this is a call to action, uh, are we ready to step forward into the newness of what God has for us if we let go of the building or we um, open our doors to another community? Um, what does that look like to allow something new to happen in your church, mm-hmm. and are you ready for that? And, and what does it take to get ready for that? What do we need to do to be this new uh, vision, this new creation of God's? I think you're right. I think that call is, um, if not explicit, at least implicit in this text because it's a prophetic text. It's not just saying, you know, here's some interesting thoughts and ideas about it, but it's, hey, God says, I'm opening a new way here. What are you going to do about that? Yeah. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> do, you know, does that mean packing up your boxes and your bags and taking your belongings? Does it mean selling your business? Does it mean registering your kids for a new school? I mean, you know, what does getting up and going someplace and doing something new require? Mm-hmm. And it does require a response from us, not just praise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have more preaching thoughts, Rachel? I have a couple. Um, one of the things I love about the Exodus story is that um, God gives a reason to Pharaoh why he wants them, why he wants him to free his people, which is in order to go out and to worship God. Um, and I, I just love this idea of God doing a new thing in order to give purpose to the people. You know, I think of God putting Adam right away into the garden in order to till it and to keep it. And God releasing the people from bondage, not just because they were suffering, but in order to give them a new purpose in life. And I, I think of that here, too, in this text as we hear this new thing, that it's not just kind of go do something new, but go do something new because there's a purpose to it. There's a purpose for you and for, you know, what God wants to accomplish around you. And that's an incredible thing to grab onto and be a part of. And then the second one um, is actually beyond verse 21. I think it's going to be my goal in every podcast to come up with a <laughs> preaching angle that goes beyond the lectionary text. How could you? I know, right? <laughs> I know. Such a rebel. Uh, But as the text continues beyond verse 21, um, it demonstrates God's needs in this relationship and the things that uh, God wants from the Israelites in this new relationship. And then it, it follows with this kind of cry from God, and it's a singular imperative of the verb to remember, a hifil. Uh, singular imperative. And Hiphil is usually um, causing something to happen. And so God says, not only remember, but essentially like 
cause to remember. Make me remember. Join in this with me. Tell me your version of the story so that you can be vindicated. And it's this incredible invitation that's almost a demand to be in relationship with God, um, which is kind of a heady thought when you think of God as the creator of the universe. So I just, I loved that as well. Well, I think we should probably bring this part of our conversation to a close. Uh, Dr. Vanessa Lovelace, thank you so much. This has been a real treat to have this conversation with you, and I've just really appreciated all of the insight that you've been able to bring to this conversation. Well, thank you again. It was, again, it was a pleasure. And with that, I hope that all of you out there will be preaching the Old Testament lectionary reading for this coming Sunday's sermon. So uh, thank you all for listening, and tune in next week for our, our next little mini episode of First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers. Hey, did you know that you can subscribe to First Reading in iTunes or the Apple Podcast app? You could even leave us a few stars if you wanted to. And don't forget to check out firstreadingpodcast.com, our official website. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time.